Welcome to First Things First. I'm Jenna Wolf alongside Nick Wright, Kevin Wiles. We got Brian Westbrook with us this morning. It is Monday. We have a fun, jam-packed show. Starting with Cam Newton, who refuses to be a backup. We're talking Michael Jordan and what we learned from two episodes of the documentary last night. And the Cowboys finally sign a quarterback. Dalton, not Dak. That's where we start this morning today. Dallas making news over the weekend, gentlemen. Signing 32-year-old free agent quarterback Andy Dalton. It is a one-year deal worth up to $7 million, $3 million of that guaranteed. Now, this was reportedly not a leverage move, but instead a way to add depth to the position. What's the word for, oh, okay, sure it is, because I'd use that word. Nick, start with you. What does this signing mean for Dak Prescott? Yeah, I saw the same reports that, oh, the Cowboys want to make this very clear. This has nothing to do with Dak Prescott. It's just adding depth to the position. Nonsense. Dak has never missed a game due to injury in his football life. You don't spend three million bucks to get a backup quarterback when you already have a two million dollar backup quarterback in Cooper Rush there to add depth to the position unless it is exactly what a lot of us immediately thought it was, which is a negotiating investment. Think about it like this. Right now, when the Cowboys and Dak come to the table, The card that Dak holds in his pocket that goes unspoken about is this catastrophic injury insurance policy he has taken out on himself. For an investment I believe to be around a million bucks, he has a $100 million windfall coming his way if, God forbid, something awful happened to him on the field, which allows him to play a bit of hardball. So the Cowboys counter Dak's seven-figure investment with a seven-figure investment of their own named Andy Dalton saying, okay, we're also going to come to the to the negotiating table with an insurance policy. He's a former Pro Bowl quarterback who actually, his first four years in the league, amazingly won more games than you did, Dak, in your first four years in the league. And he's just there. He's just there in the background, and you just know he's there. And if you still want to turn down $110, $112, $114 million guaranteed, then go right ahead Pay no attention to the former starting quarterback who now all of a sudden is on our roster, by the way, through no minor expense. Wilds, three million bucks guaranteed doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider the Cowboys' entire quarterback room last year cost $2.8 million, and now you're spending $3 million on a third quarterback, the, the cap dollars eventually do add up. So, Wilds, I look at this as a negotiating investment by the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, I think you're right, Nick. I'm I'm looking at it as nightmare insurance. Like the nightmare is the 2015 season. The Cowboys start the season two and zero. Romo gets hurt. They go two and twelve the rest of the way. Romo comes back, wins a game against the Dolphins. He goes three and one. Castle, former Patriot great, he gets one win because he was on the Patriots. He goes one and Patriot six. Great. Brandon Whedon goes zero and three, and Kellen Moore goes zero and two. Now, Dak comes in the next year, like you said. The guy's never missed a game. All of a sudden, most consecutive starts, active quarterbacks. It's Rivers, Wilson, Dak, the great Tom Brady, and Derek Carr, and Dak's only 26. So I don't think they want Andy Dalton to take a snap this year, and he probably won't. But just in case he does, the Cowboys are making sure that next year isn't a repeat of the 2015 nightmare season. 
Brian, do you look at this from a different perspective? You played the game. Do you think this was a leverage move by the Cowboys? You know, I, I do look at it at a bit of a different perspective. And to me, there's no better insurance policy for teams that are trying to win right now than a veteran quarterback, a guy that can go in, doesn't need a bunch of reps, and can, can play right away and help your team win right now. We had back in the day, even though Donovan McNabb was healthy and playing well, we brought in Jeff Garcia because Andy knew him. He knew that he didn't need a bunch of reps and that when he had an opportunity, he was going to step in and be able to lead the football team. And I think, to me, this is the same play for the Dallas Cowboys. Just in case Dak says, you know what, I don't want to play for $33 million bucks. I Now they have an opportunity to bring in a guy that can help them win right now because their team is to is built to, to win right now. But, but here's the thing, if you're Dak Prescott, Andy Dalton, in my mind, doesn't mean very much because the only reason Andy Dalton steps on that field is, one, if I get injured or I decide I don't want to accept $33 million of Jerry Jones' money and go out there and play football. So, so to me, if I'm Dak, Dak Prescott coming off my career best season, this move doesn't mean very much unless I'm saying I don't want to play because Andy Dalton will be on the bench until Dak, especially if he signs his contract, until Dak doesn't want to play any longer. So to me, it, it doesn't really move the needle um, if I'm Dak. But it also shows me this, that in sports, and it's a reminder, in sports, the biggest fear is injury. I signed a contract a little bit earlier and probably a little less money because I wanted to take the factor of injury out of the equation. The same type of thing happened to Scottie Pippen in the, in the last dance documentary. He signed a seven-year, $18 million contract because he didn't want to have to worry about the injury. He wanted to take care of his family. This is the difference between Dak. Dak went out there last year and played through that opportunity, played through that risk, and said, I'm just going to go out there and I'm either going to be franchised or I'm going to be a free agent. And once you play through that risk, there's no changing that mindset. There's no change in my thought that I'm willing to play through anything, whether they bring in someone else, whether they, they stall out on my contract. I'm, I was willing to play through the hardest thing in sports, and that was a fear of injury. That played through that. So any deal after that, especially with Andy Dalton or any other quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater, if they would have brought him, him in, Cam Newton, if they would have brought him in, that wouldn't have changed my philosophy because I'm coming off the best year of, of football that I've played in the NFL, and I've already played through that fear of the injury. All right, so Brian doesn't think this affects Dak Prescott. Nick, what do you think? How should Dak Prescott feel? Well, I, listen, I don't know Dak, but he, if I were advising him, I would have to have a very honest conversation with him that this is not about 2020. Either they get Dak signed or if they don't, he's going to play for the franchise tag of a shade over $31 million. This is about a negotiating tool if we are talking about Dak's contract 10 months from now. Because what the Cowboys are putting themselves in position to be able to say is, we have a veteran quarterback, Andy Dalton, who's 32 years old, who Mike McCarthy will get a year to see at practice, who will get to learn the system, who will where the, Dak will not be able to hold over their head. Well, what are you going to do without me? Their answer could be, well, you know, it's funny you say that, we, we spent three million bucks last year on that exact concern. And so the, I, I agree, this year the only way Dalton plays is if something catastrophic happens to Dak Prescott. And as I mentioned, the guy's never been hurt. And you, But you, Wilds, you showed that list of quarterbacks with the longest consecutive starts. What's notable is the guys ahead of Dak 
Nobody knows who the hell their backups are. Philip Rivers, some dude named yep. Easton Stick. I'm sure if he was the Patriots backup last year, you'd be telling us he's going to be a star. He was actually taken right after Jared Stidham, but he can't play. Russell Wilson's backup, I looked it up this morning. I couldn't. I didn't know who it was. It's an undrafted guy I'd never heard of. Teams that have notoriously healthy quarterbacks don't invest $5 million, which Cooper Rush plus Dalton equals $5 million bucks in the backup quarterback position. It is about a, a minor shot across the bow, Kevin, to Dak to let him know, okay, but if you if you play hardball continuously, eventually we do have an alternative. At least, Wilds, that's certainly how I'm reading it. That, that's interesting, Nick. I actually, well, see if, see if you buy this. Is there a chance that this is actually, like, really good for Dak? Like, I don't think Dak is learning anything from Cooper Rush. No offense to Cooper Rush, but... He's more seasoned and he knows more than Cooper Rush. You bring in Andy Dalton and Dak can actually learn. So this might be a net positive for Dak. Brian, do you buy that? Like, did Jeff Garcia make Donovan better? I think there were some situations that Jeff, that he had been in because he was in the league a little bit longer than Donovan, he was able to help him out with. And I think when you come to the sideline and you have a guy that has been a starter in the league and sees things different uh, than a backup that really hasn't played very much, it certainly is an asset. But, you know, I, I still think that whether Cooper Rush or Andy Dalton uh, is going to be the backup or going to be the guy that's going to come in if Dak doesn't play, it, it doesn't it wouldn't change very much of how Dak plays. I still think he goes out there and has a really good year coming off his best season in the NFL last year. Jenna, there's a name for people who aren't supposed to play, who are supposed to make your quarterback better. They're called coaches. They didn't sign a coach. They signed a quarterback. <laughs> it's not about just making Dak better. It's about a long-term planning for the Cowboys. All right, Andy Dalton, now a member of the Dallas Cowboys, while Dak Prescott remains unsigned. More to this story, I'm sure. Back here, first things first, now joined by friend of the show, Chris Broussard. Good morning, Broussard. Good to have you here. Lots to get to from last night. We're going to break down episodes five and six from The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc. The doc took us through, let's see, MJ's first three-peat, his gambling trips to Atlantic City, his hesitant decision to sign with Nike, and subsequently the rise of the Air Jordan. There was a lot of Danny Ainge in this, but we might not get to that right off the bat. They packed a lot into two hours. Broussard, tell me what was your biggest takeaway from last night? Well, I like, like you said, they addressed a lot of the off-the-court issues for Michael Jordan. And knowing that he had a lot of control over the content, I like the fact that he addressed a lot of these things head-on. First and first of all was the Dream Team controversy with Isaiah Thomas. I do like that Jordan gave Isaiah his respect and said, look, I think he's the second greatest point guard of all time behind Magic Johnson. And no matter how much I hate him, like, to say he hates Isaiah Thomas, yeah. he obviously had called him out in the last episode, but I liked that he addressed it. Now, I would have liked to have seen a little follow-up question like, well, why do you hate him so deeply? Is it just the walk-off? Do you believe he froze you out in the All-Star game in 1985? You know, dig a little deeper, but I liked that Jordan addressed it and left no questions about how he feels about Isaiah Thomas and that he didn't want him on that team. Uh, with the dream team. Second thing was, 
I like that they addressed the fact that Jordan didn't talk about social issues. I thought it was very powerful that Barack Obama, obviously formerly the most powerful man in the world, actually said mainstream America will accept African-Americans as like Oprah, like Michael Jordan, like himself, Barack Obama, as long as you don't do or say anything controversial. It was to the point with Michael Jordan where he actually rejected a plea from his mother to speak out on behalf of Harvey Gantt, and he still didn't do it. So I I thought that was interesting that they addressed that, especially if people want to contrast it to a Muhammad Ali or a LeBron James today. And then thirdly, obviously they had to address the gambling. And you could see, like, Jordan said he doesn't have a gambling issue as a competitive issue or competition issue. And you saw that in his lust to gamble with any and everybody, even the security guys for $20 before games, or as John Paxton said, a dollar a hand blackjack on the bus or team plane. So I thought that all of that stuff was interesting because those are issues people wanted to know about and weren't sure whether or not Jordan would address them. Those are great points, Chris. Nick, I thought my biggest takeaway here was the divergent paths that people are consuming this documentary and their takeaways from it. I think there's a part of you that thinks, wow, Jordan is even better and more spectacular and more extraordinary than I thought. Then the other path is, wow, Jordan is more human and flawed and a real person and more so than I thought. So I think having the director, Jason Harris, done an excellent job at merging those two like the man in the myth. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, listen, it's a beautifully done piece, and I'm super excited for the final four episodes, and I think you're absolutely right. And the time jumps haven't been confusing. They've done a really good job at kind of having these two timelines slowly merge together. I, my, I had two major takeaways. One was revelatory, one was a good reminder. I'll start with the reminder. And Bruce, listen, full disclosure here. I grew up, a New York Knicks fan, okay? My mom's from New York. I'm from Kansas City. I So we didn't have a team. First game I ever went to was actually game 82 of the 93 season, the season discussed last night. Knicks-Bulls at the Garden, a game the Knicks won by, I think, four or six points. So I loved those teams. I loved Patrick Ewing. But when you watch those highlights, here is an uncomfortable reminder that I know a lot of our friends in the New York-based media don't like to admit. Those Knicks teams were not that good. It was Patrick Ewing and a bunch of... uh, They were iconic. They were tough. They were memorable. But when when you look at those highlights of the team that went up 2-0 on Chicago and then lost four straight, who do they got after Patrick? John Starks, who barely made the team... Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley, Charles Smith, Doc Rivers, like that. It's Pat and a bunch of guys. And I think that should probably elevate Patrick Ewing in the eyes of many because those iconic Knicks teams were not that good. And my other takeaway, Broussard, was this. The unbelievable toll fame took on Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan became the world's most famous athlete in 1988. By 1993, he was already discussing retirement. And then I think the the gambling controversy plus completing the three-peat 
and then his father's tragic murder. He ended, all of it together, he said, you know what? I don't want this anymore. Then he comes back a year and a half later, and three more years of that scrutiny, we see him in the movie last night, laying in his uh, hotel room, saying to the cameraman in 1998, basically, it ain't fun being me. I don't want this anymore. So if five years of being the world's most famous athlete, and for a lot of reasons, he burnt out. Three more years of being the world's most famous athlete, and he said, you know what? I don't want this anymore, even though he could still play, and he still clearly wanted to play Broussard. I thought that was very informative, that just the toll being Michael Jordan took on him. Yeah, I agree with you. That was a, definitely a takeaway for me as well. And I, I got to address your Knicks point, Nick, because those Knicks teams were very good. Look, <laughs> we've seen in recent history that just gathering a collection of superstars doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the best team. Dallas, when they beat the, the Heatles, right, with LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, Miami had the most talent. Dallas had Dirk Nowitzki and old, old, old Jason Kidd and a bunch of guys, a good role players like the Knicks had, Jason Terry, Sean Marion, and they were able to win. Toronto, when they won the championship last year, they had Kawhi Leonard and a bunch of guys. And I know you can talk about injuries, but that happens, and it's happened throughout the history of the game. So chemistry, camaraderie, how guys understand their roles, that has a lot to do with what's a great team as well. Not just, oh, we had two superstars. We had three superstars. We had four superstars. When Houston had Barkley, Pippen, and Olajuwon, they won nothing. So you can't just look at it that way. That was a great Knicks team. But Broussard, that wasn't a great team. They had one all-star. They had I one all-star. Listen, I loved that team. One, I, grew one. Up, I grew up rooting for that team. One all-star. One. Not superstar, not Hall of Famer. Made all stars. John Starks made all stars. Later, later he made no. He made John Starks made all star the next year. The '93 Knicks had one guy. Yes, the next year, Doc Rivers made an all star team in '88 with the Hawks. Get the hell out of here with that! Listen, man. The fact of the matter is, Broussard. We don't Broussard. Okay, all right, fine. You want to listen? I love those <laughs> Knicks teams. Miami, they were iconic. They were fun. They were why tough. Why did Miami win four they straight hold- championships when they had the most talented team in the league? I'm not. I'm not saying you just create an all-star team and you win the title. I'm saying those Knicks teams are better in our memory than they actually were. And by the way, if you look at and I'm talking about guys who didn't make the all-star team. A Broussard. The other takeaway, just quickly here, and I want your reaction to it. We saw that 98 Eastern Conference All-Star Team photo. Ooh, oh, boy. boy. The East definitely been struggling for a while because I saw in that photo, I'm like, oh, my God, it's the Duncan Dutchman's music. Is that Cav Sean Kemp? Uh, that's, that's one of the Jason Williams guys. I remember him. Holy moly, there's Steve <laughs> Smith out there. That, that 98 East All-Star My team. My goodness. Yikes. Yikes. You are ripping. These dudes could ball. Steve Smith was a great player from his days at Michigan State onward. And Sean Kemp? Sean Kemp was awesome for a season. Have Sean Kemp. You know, a, a season in time. 
Yes, he still averaged 20 and 10. All right, well, typical millennial. Typical millennial ripping the players of yesterday. Is, is Nick a millennial? I tell him that all the time. All, I think he's a millennial. <laughs> That's a compliment. Somehow, just on the... He's almost out of it. Somehow, some way, these two aren't the most fired up guys on our panel. That I leave to Kevin Wilde, so fired up about last night. He was nervous. He wasn't going to get anybody off his chest. When he gets nervous, I get nervous. Nobody wants to see me nervous. Here's what we're going to do, Wilds. We're giving you a shot clock. It's a segment we're calling Running oh, yeah, Wilds. Yeah. And by we, I mean me. Sure. Your clock, get ready, starts now. Okay, here are the 13 biggest surprises from the documentary. One, I was surprised that Jordan laced his own shoes. I was surprised that in 1985, Jordan was the, one was the best shoe in the world, then 13 years later, it turns your foot into a bloodbath. I was surprised that Barkley thought he was the best player in the world for a while. I was surprised that Jordan called Isaiah the second best point guard ever. I was surprised at how great Ahmad Rashad looked in that inside stuff all over print. I'd buy those, they bring them back out. Surprised Jordan thought it was a good idea to wear sunglasses for that interview, never a good idea. I was surprised that Jordan played Ticket Broker before the game. Uh, surprised Seinfeld aged so well. Seinfeld looking great. Surprised at the 93 finals, the home team lost every game except one. I was surprised 62,000 people saw Bulls Hawks in the Georgia Dome. Surprised Jordan saying he wanted to leave two years before his skills deteriorated. And a surprise we didn't get more of Danny Ainge for Jenna. Nick, those were my biggest surprises from the last Thank two you. episodes of The Last Dance. Wow, and you did that fast. I'm gonna add two more. I'm gonna add two more surprises, Broussard. One, I'm surprised that up four with 40 seconds left in Game Six of the NBA Finals, the Phoenix Suns played the single worst possession of transition defense I've ever seen in my life. Just allowing Michael Jordan to get a layup to cut it to two. The hell you doing, Barkley? I love you, Chuck. Turn and run, man. You're titled. Everything's on the line. And the other thing I was surprised about, and Broussard, I, I, I'm surprised basketball reference has a mistake. Because in 93, after falling down 0-2, after the, all the Atlantic City gambling controversy, that game three, to avoid going down 0-3, basketball reference says Michael Jordan went three for 18 in that game. And his team won. So they must have a mistake there because I know Michael never had a game like that in essentially an elimination game. It's part of his legend. So I'm surprised by those two things. That was in the 93 season. The doc didn't show that game, so I assume, I, I don't know exactly what happened. Basketball reference just must have it wrong, Broussard. I got to give you credit on that, nice. Nick, because the way they de depicted it in the, in the story last night was that Jordan came out and had this awesome game three. I actually had to look back myself because I was like, wait a minute. He had a horrible game, and they still won. The Knicks blew it. Jeff Van Gundy's talked about that, but they talked last yeah, night like great Jordan Knicks came team. out and lit him up. Yeah. The other thing is this. Yeah, that great you saw Knicks at the team. end of the end of the, the, end of the uh, series with Phoenix, that last play, Jordan was really not involved. He got the ball in the backcourt, threw it ahead to Scottie Pippen. Pippen drove past the horse. Grant Grant passes to Paxson. Paxson hits the shot. If that happened today to some players we know of, they would be getting destroyed oh. for not being involved in the play. Oh. So your point shows how, you know, uh -oh. Jordan, hey, hey, that wasn't even a bad moment for Jordan. They won. His teammate hit the shot. No, yeah. But when somebody else does that, he gets killed for it. 
I, w- I don't know who, but somebody oh, wow. point. Giannis, you're talking about Giannis. Yes. You got a weird Leave LeBron complex, man. You bring him up a lot. <laughs> I oh, LeBron, we finally mentioned him. him. Hey, listen. The two, the two greatest somehow, players ever. Somehow, some way, somehow, some way, last night's episode managed to get my two favorite people, Jerry Seinfeld and Danny Ainge, in the same show. I've now watched it three times. So let's just <laughs> conclude by saying everybody won last night. Welcome back. Now joined by former NFL head coach Eric Mangini. Good morning, coach. Thanks for being with us today. So, uh, you know, when Andy Dalton was released by the Cincinnati Bengals on Thursday, many assumed he'd be a Patriot by, well, Thursday night. Spoiler alert, Andy Dalton is now a Cowboy, and New England reportedly showing minimal interest in Dalton. It appears as if the Patriots are taking Wild's approach of sticking with Stidham. There we go. Shirts are being made. Coach, did the Patriots make the right choice not signing Andy Dalton? And now, as Wild says, sticking with Stidham? Well, they, they made an understandable choice. When, when you look at, at this decision-making process, you, you really have to factor in how big an impact you think that guy can have. And, and New England's in a unique situation. They're at the bottom of the league in terms of cap space. They're 30th right now. I think Kansas City and Atlanta are the only teams that are lower than him. And the $3 million that Andy Dalton got from Dallas guaranteed is a million dollars more than they're paying both Brian Hoyer and Stidham. So you're talking about that that financial component. And if you feel like he's not going to be that big an upgrade from Brian Hoyer in terms of a veteran presence, eh, there's no reason to, to, to go make that move. And I, I can understand why... They feel strongly about Hoyer. He's been there for five years, you know, between his, his couple stints that he's had. And, and he provides a, an element of, of leadership and, and mentorship for, for Stidham. So they're, they're all in with, with, with the two guys that they have. It's costing them a total of $2 million. They're in a financial situation that they're not usually in. And the situation with a veteran quarterback, it's gotta, it's gotta make sense. And, and, they obviously felt this one didn't make sense. Well, I feel great about it, Coach, to be honest with you. When Nick texted us great. this news, I, my first thought, he, he framed it as a Dak thing, and I framed it as a, like, thank goodness he's not on the Patriots. And this is just more proof that we should all get on the Stidham train because that's where Belichick is, that's where I am, and he, we could have had tons of quarterbacks, and we've decided to go with Stidham. Could have re-signed Brady. Nope. Could have drafted Jordan Love or Jalen Hurts. Nope. We traded out. Could have drafted Jameis for a million bucks. We can't draft him. We could have signed him for a million bucks. Or we could have gotten Andy Dolphin with some maneuvering. But this is just another vote of confidence for Stidham. Nick, if you'd like to join the Stidham train, come on aboard. We've got plenty of uh, seats. They're very nice. It's a nice Acela. It goes from my house straight to Foxborough. The train tracks move a little bit. Listen, I'd love to join the Stidham train if I could believe it. Listen, come on I board. know Jared Stidham's father-in-law quite well. And I don't think he's been very happy with some of my commentary about his beloved son-in-law. It would be a great story, but I am too much of a prisoner to the information that we have available to us. And listen, they are clearly sticking with Stidham, at least for the time being. There's a cam component here that still makes me anxious, and maybe we can get into that later. But the evidence we have with Stidham, we have no evidence about him in the pros. He's thrown four passes. I don't care that one of them was a pick six. It's too small of a sample size. So what we do, though, have is evidence of the quarterbacks drafted around him. 
So if you look at the last year's NFL draft and you look at the two quarterbacks taken before Stidham, the quarterback taken right after Stidham, what have they done? Well, there's Will Greer. He was in Carolina. They started the season with Cam. Then they went to Kyle Allen. Then Kyle Allen turned back into Kyle Allen. They're like, I guess we'll give Will Greer a try. He threw three picks in his first game, threw a pick six in his second game, and then he's, okay, he's done, and he's been passed over. Then there was Ryan Finley. Ryan Finley bathed himself in so much glory for the Bengals last year that they took Joe Burrow number one overall. Then right after Stidham, there's Easton Stick. Easton Stick with his second mention on the show today. Who'd have thought that? The Chargers loved him so much, they took Justin (laughs) Herbert in this year's draft. So the three quarterbacks drafted in closest proximity to Jared Stidham After a year with their teams, all of their teams said, no, not a starter, can't happen. Sign Teddy Bridgewater, draft Joe Burrow, draft Justin Herbert. Stidham, who is the one of those three, of those four who didn't actually play, is the one we are assigning fate to. And coach, this is the question I would have for you. Do you think Jared Stidham's stock is actually enhanced by the fact that he didn't play last year? Because those other mid-round quarterbacks that had to play, their team saw him and they said, okay, we can't go into the season with this guy. Do you think it helped him that he essentially had a red shirt year? Well, well, first of all, let's go on the the argument that the quarterbacks drafted around him weren't successful, so therefore he's not successful. That would would imply that that this is an exact science. And, And we know that evaluating quarterbacks is not an exact science. Developing quarterbacks is not an exact science. How else does Tom Brady get drafted in the sixth round and become the greatest quarterback of all time. So, so that, that's flawed. In terms of him sitting and not playing, there, there's real value to that. And every year you see young guys get drafted, and every year organizations say, we want to give him some time to develop and sit and learn. But then they rush him in. The guy's not ready. He gets scarred or, or has setbacks, and he's not the guy that they hope, they, they hope he can become. Tom Brady, his first year, was not good at all. I was there. Okay? He had great characteristics. He had, he had great traits. He developed those traits. But you wouldn't look at him and say, okay, this is a, a starting quarterback in the NFL, and put him on anywhere near the trajectory that, that, that he took. So I, there is value in being able to sit behind Tom Brady for a year and learn. And now you go into this situation, and look, it's a no-win situation for any quarterback that takes over, who wants to take over for Tom Brady? You're never going to compare to what he's done. So having the year, I do think, helps him. Evaluating him based on what other guys did who were drafted around him, I don't think that's a fair assessment. Nick, I got a question for you. What, what do you think then did happen with the Patriots? Do you think they got caught off guard? They were playing musical chairs, and all of a sudden there were no quarterbacks left for them? I mean, they could have drafted one. It was a heavy quarterback draft class. But if they're not all in on Stidham, what do you think actually happened there? Well, there's two viable options, one of which terrifies me. The first option is they do really like Stidham. That Belichick says last year if we scored 15 points in every single game, we'd have gone 11-5. and five. It were a defense, special teams, offensive line, running, coach-oriented team. And we don't want to spend money on the quarterback, and we think Stidham can develop. That's door number one. Door number two is they're laying in the weeds for Cam. And Wilds, that door seems to be opening further and further and further. And as someone who is, uh, you know, for my entire adult life, I've rooted against the Patriots. 
It makes me very anxious. You claim to be a Stidham guy. You will leave him yeah, like a high school girlfriend for Cam Newton the moment that news story comes out, if it comes out. That's the one, Wilds, that makes me most nervous, that Cam is still unsigned and the Patriots still have this seeming opening, Kevin. Well, as you know, Nick, a few weeks ago I was a Cam guy, but it was too emotionally rocky for me, and the uncertainty just forced me into Stidham's arms. So I'm still a Stidham guy. <laughs> I'm not entertaining any Cam uh, talk at this time. If you want to talk about a pre-show meeting or post-show meeting, that is totally acceptable. But during the show, we, I think that you should just throw, like, uh, Stidham questions to me, what Stidham's ceiling. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, Coach, I've got a question for you. Last week, you talked about the Patriots taking a global approach this season where it's more special teams, defense, you know. Can you just describe the global approach that Belichick might take to this season with Stidham as a quarterback? Well, it's not unique to this season, Kevin. It's it's how they approach everything. And that's what makes New England different than a lot of teams is the head coach is the head coach of the whole team. And, and there is an emphasis on on defense and special teams, as well as quarterback play and, and offensive line play. And, and and when you look at how they drafted, get a couple linebackers or edge rushers, however you want to put them, 3-4, three, 4-3. Four, four, three. You get a couple of tight ends. You get a couple of O-linemen. You get some safeties. They're, they're building not only they're, – they're infusing young talent in a lot of, in a lot of um, sort of foundation-type positions, uh, which, they, which they typically do. This is this is a situation that, in a transition from an iconic person and a legend, it's going to be hard for whoever plays that role. So by having this this young quarterback assume that and not putting the pressure on him to win every single game, but to go out and and do what he he needs to do to allow the whole team to collectively win the game, I think is is the right approach. Coach, I'll, I'll let you have the last word on this. I just want to hear your thoughts on this part very quickly. Because while I was talking about Cam, I saw the look of a disgusted parent on your face. <laughs> like you were disappointed in me. Like you had I just like this idiot. This guy's talking about Cam again. All right. D d tell me why you don't think the Cam thing is a, it'll make me feel better. Why it's a viable option at all. It, it just doesn't fit. And New England is looking for a starter, not a star. Okay. It's not, they're not trying to go get the guy who wants to be the face of the franchise, who wants to have all of the attention. They want someone who's going to come in and, and play a role and do the things that, that, that they need to do for the collective good of the team, as opposed to their brand or their next contract or their expectations and, and I'm not begrudging Cam Newton any of those things. He should, he should look for the best opportunity that he can find. But the fit in New England just doesn't make sense based off of where he is, typically his approach, and, and New England's approach, it, it's just not a, a good fit at all. All right, and you got to wonder, if the door is ajar for Cam to go to the Patriots, we've heard nothing from them there hasn't been any movement. Why would they wait this long? Why not go ahead and try to work something out? So we'll have to wait and see. Meanwhile, as it looks, Jared Stidham is to, looks like he's going to be their opening day starter whenever opening day is. Take a break. Westbrook, and it is time for stories to start your morning. So former Patriot Asante Samuel told TMZ Sports that Tom Brady left New England because he, quote, probably got fed up with Bill Belichick. Uh, 
Okay, and I work out because I probably want to get in better shape. Nick, is this true? <laughs> oh, unlike unlike yours, Jenna, this is not accurate. This is a guy whose wife leaves him. And then when he's asked about it, he's like, man, I was sick of her anyway. Like, that's not what happened, bro. Like, Brady didn't, Brady didn't opt to leave. He was told you can't come back. So maybe there is a fringe benefit of he's not going to be getting nagged about the dishes anymore, but he would rather still be living in that house. We know that. So with respect to Asante Samuel, that ain't what happened here, bro. So, yeah, no, I, I, I disagree with this analysis, Wild. Poor take integrity. Oh, wow, take integrity. We didn't get that to the last block of the show. I thought we were going to get more take integrity throughout the whole show. Brian, Asante Samuel also talked about that he didn't have any fun in New England. What's your perspective on fun? Like, was your career fun? Was that one of the main things you were after, fun? Well, I'll tell you this. I would have had a lot more fun if we didn't lose that Super Bowl to the Patriots back in 04-05. So I, I, I'll start there. If, if you're telling me that it's fun uh, or not fun, to win six Super Bowls and appear in nine, then I would like to have that not fun. I would like to be in that situation. To me, fun is winning, uh, winning championships. And that's one thing that the Patriots have proven over time, that they know how to get to the big dance and win it. So to me, that's the fun. I'm not so sure that Asante uh, is on the same page with Tom Brady here. I agree. There's a price to pay for all that success. It's okay if you don't have a little fun. You're winning. All right, let's move on to Cam Newton. Our friends over at Fox Bet still have the Patriots, who appear to need a starting quarterback as the favorites to land Cam. And the 30-year-old free agent reportedly won't accept a job as a backup quarterback, willing to wait till a starting job opens up. Nick, you still think Cam to the Patriots is a real possibility? Oh, I think it's definitely a real possibility. It, it creates anxiety for me because I've always rooted for Cam. I've always rooted against New England. I don't need these streams to cross. But I know Cam's going to get criticized by a lot of folks in the media for not, saying he's not going to take a backup quarterback job. And those exact same folks in the media, if they were to lose their jobs, guess what they're not about to do? Take any odd job that comes around to them. Oh, you were hosting Sports Center? Hey, you want to be our weekend anchor in Biloxi? Nah, bro, I'll wait for a better option. This is what talented people do. Cam's going to get criticized for it because Cam gets criticized for everything from five-year-old press conferences to his fly post-game outfits. But yeah, I, I don't think he should accept a backup job. And Wilds, I do think it's a very real possibility he ends up going to New England for pennies on the dollar, and it and it and it just gives me agita, as my old Italian grandfather would say. Okay, I put in a, a special app on my um, my hearing device here that I'm not listening to any Cam talk. So if any Cam talk came through Cam to the Patriots, I'm just a Stidham guy. It's my Stidham filter. Brian, if Cam does come in mid-season for an injured quarterback. How would that actually work? He just shows up day one and it takes a week and all of a sudden he's the starting quarterback. How does that work? I think that's probably the biggest concern for many of the GMs and coaches in the league that everyone loves Cam's athletic ability and everyone loves his, his ability to make plays out of nothing to create things. The question is, as a backup, can he come in and help you right away without a lot of reps? especially coming off the injury. And so I, I think that 
if I'm a quarterback and I'm a, I'm a coach in the league, I'm a little bit worried about Cam coming in, running my system as the backup anyway. So I, I would be concerned with bringing him in as the backup. But mm. I, I listed a few teams. The, the, the Patriots, the Bears, the Redskins, Chargers, and Jags, all teams that he has a possibility of going in and potentially winning that opportunity as a starter. And of course, the Redskins have Kyle Allen. The Bears went out and got Nick Foles. The Patriots don't have a true starter. And the Jags have Gardner Minshew in a way. I think Cam, even if he went in as not the starter, could have the opportunity to go in and win the starting job there if he got into camp up early enough. The one problem here is that we're not quite sure what's going to happen with camp, OTAs, things like that, especially with the coronavirus that we're all dealing with. And so uh, this probably is the only choice that Cam has at this time. The other problem, Brian, is that he doesn't want to be a backup. So he's not going to have that opportunity. He will wait until a starting role becomes available. On to our favorite kind of source now. An anonymous GM said he has doubts about Joe Burrow, comparing him to a former number one overall pick by saying Burrow is, quote, Alex Smith-like. Brian, send it back to you. Is this an accurate comparison? Well, I think the comparison is is pretty accurate. I think I like the way that you compare the size. Both guys are about the same size, 6'3", 6'4", 220 pounds or so. I think that um, Alex Smith has a little bit more athletic ability and a little stronger arm than Barrow. But he, in, in times, he was a game manager. And here's a question I would ask the people in Cincinnati. Would you sign up for 94, 66, and 1? Meaning 94 wins, 66 losses, and 1 tie. That's what Alex Smith had uh, as a quarterback in the NFL. When you look at the last 10 years in Cincinnati, they have 77 wins, 81 losses, and two ties. So to me, I would absolutely sign up for, for Alex Smith if I'm Cincinnati. He may not be the superstar that you want. He may not be uh, Patrick Mahomes. He may not be Aaron Rodgers. But when you talk about the four last teams that played this season, they're still with Ryan Tannehill and Jimmy G. Jimmy G, a game manager, Alex Smith type, played in the Super Bowl, had an opportunity to win. If he would have played one more quality football quarter, they, the San Francisco 49ers would have won the Super Bowl. And so I'm not so uh, upset with the comparison to Alex Smith. I also don't think that it's a bad thing. When you look at the weapons that Joe Burrow would have around him, T. Higgins, uh, Joe Mixon, and A.J. Green, all three of those guys are much better than any of the weapons, save for Frank Gore in San Francisco, that Alex had throughout his entire career. I think that's a perfect take, Brian. If we could put up the graphic from 2011 to 2017, Alex Smith was great. So I don't know if this anonymous GM was trying to insult Joe Burrow, but it didn't work. He's got more wins than Russell Wilson, Big Ben, and Aaron <laughs> Rodgers. Not quite Brady level, but he's pretty good, Nick. Yeah, listen, I, I like Alex Smith a lot, and I'm rooting for Joe Burrow. Let me tell you, as someone whose team had Alex Smith play quarterback for him for the lion's share of that time, you do not want Alex Smith if you drafted a quarterback number one overall. He has a very high floor and a very defined ceiling, and that is the concern with Burrow. The concern with Burrow is, does he have A-plus ability? And as a guy who watched those Chiefs teams with Alex Smith, have a very hard glass ceiling I, I don't think that's what you're looking for in the number one overall pick so if it is an apt comparison I think Cincinnati is going to be a little disappointed if the comparison proves out Jenna okay 
All right, speaking of those Kansas City Chiefs, Nick, Patrick Mahomes is not worried about a Super Bowl hangover with Mahomes saying, quote, we want to do this again. Easier said than done, I would imagine. Brian, you think the Chiefs can repeat this year? I absolutely do. Here's the hardest part about the Super Bowl, and even, and I want to say the Super Bowl hangover, but even if you just played in the Super Bowl, you're celebrating, you played longer than any other team in the league. So 30 teams have not played as long as you. You're celebrating win or lose. You're enjoying your offseason, and you still want to have time with your family. Here's a great thing in an unfortunate situation that we're in. Because of everyone's stay-at-home quarantine order, the Kansas City Chiefs haven't been able to celebrate as much as uh, I think a team that would normally win the Super Bowl. So they're at home. They have the ability to get better. They have the ability to train. They don't have to worry about some of those partying types of things. This may be a perfect situation for Kansas City. And they're returning, what, 20 of their 22 starters? That's an amazing fact. That's the ability to go back and do it again. They have a young team, a hungry coach. To me, this sets up perfectly for the Chiefs. Nick, in in the quote from Mahomes, he said that they weren't going to relax, and he viewed relaxing as the main culprit of reasons not to go back to back. I don't know if that's the only culprit, but what is your take? Well, listen, where I'm at on this is, I don't know if folks know this, But we're in the midst of an unprecedented drought in the NFL. Longest time we've ever gone in history without repeat champions. In the 60s, we had the Packers. I'm going to do this off the top of my head, but I think I'll get it right. In the 70s, we had the Dolphins and the Steelers. The Steelers did it twice. In the 80s, we had the Niners. In the 90s, we had the Cowboys and the Broncos. In the 2000 aughts, we had your Patriots. In the 2010s, nobody. 15 years and running without back-to-back championships. The only way to fix that is for the Chiefs to peel off three or four in a row, which nobody's ever done. So obviously there's not going to be a letdown. Brian Westbrook is correct. It's great that they are not, uh, that they are returning 20 of their 22 starters, not returning their starting punter, because as we discussed last week, they might not carry a punter this year. And all the money that I won on the Super Bowl, and then, by the way, America, if you're watching the end of the show Friday, then won on betting Secretariat in the fake Kentucky Derby. Told you 7-2 was a lock winner. Now go ahead and put it on the Chiefs to win this year's Super Bowl as well. Jenna Wolf, let's all make money for America. So they're going to repeat? Is that what you're trying to tell me? We got to go. See you tomorrow, everyone.